0: Welcome to the Weekend Edition of The Daily Writer. Each weekday, we bring you a short lesson that helps you live out the four practices of a great writer. Creativity, consistency, courage, and connection. Here on The Weekend Edition, we take a deeper dive into those topics through conversations with writers and teaching that helps us apply what we're learning. For more, you can visit us at dailywriterlife.com. This is the final installment of our Encore interview series, which we've been doing the last few weeks. These are conversations from the archives that I wanted to bring back and revisit because they were so much fun. And if you haven't heard these already, I think you're really going to enjoy these. As a writer, one of the most valuable skills that you can learn is storytelling. Stories are the way that we process information and make sense of the world around us. Well, I'm thrilled to be talking with Doug Phillips, who is the professor of New Testament and Greek studies and the chair of the Biblical Education Division at St. Louis Christian College, where I'm also a professor. Doug has multiple advanced degrees and is also working on a PhD in New Testament from Asbury Theological Seminary. On this episode, we're going to do a deep dive into the topic of storytelling in the Bible, and Doug shares his journey to becoming a professor and helps us understand why Jesus' parables were so powerful. You'll learn what makes an effective story, the key components of Jesus' parables, and how to start applying those lessons to your own writing and communication. So here's my conversation with Professor Doug Phillips. Well, for those who are listening, this is sort of a a continuation or a repeat in some ways, or almost a part two of a class session that we did last week. So I'm teaching a class called Storytelling. It's actually called The Art of Storytelling. Uh, this semester here at St. Louis Christian College, and I had Doug come in and talk about the parables of Jesus and how we can learn as storytellers how Jesus communicated and connected to his audience using parables. And of course, storytelling is a huge topic nowadays, so I thought this would be kind of a fun thing. Doug is extremely knowledgeable about the Bible and uh, particularly the New Testament, and uh, I wanted to have him come and share a little bit about storytelling. So if you could maybe start out a little bit, Doug, by giving us kind of a brief overview of how did you become a professor here at St. Louis Christian College? You know, a lot of people are listening, probably wondering, how do you get to be a professor at a college? How does that system work? So if you can take us a little bit on your journey as to how you became a professor in the first place.
1: Sure. It's a, it's a long road. <laughs> it was for me anyway, but I uh, always, uh, enjoyed teaching in the church and any other time I got a chance to teach, always enjoyed it and was, uh, reaffirmed by people that I, it was a gift that I had and I loved to learn. And then I, Obviously, from my learning, I like to share that information with others. So, um, I uh, pursued a couple of master's degrees because I enjoyed education. I always want to make myself. I always wanted to make myself better for, for kingdom work, for God's work, and I felt it helped me um, in my sermon preparation and sermon delivery of just having that knowledge to be able to share with other people. So, um, it seems like God's reaffirmed us for me all through my my journey. Over and over, he's helped me out and uh, made it easy. Well, not easy, but made it possible, I guess, uh, made it easier for us to pursue this. So, and then uh, the PhD program, I, I tell you the truth, I really didn't want to go into the, the <laughs> I didn't know PhD because uh, I knew it was going to be very difficult. You have to, I had to learn five languages, well, three biblical languages, languages. I already knew those, and then mm-hmm. modern German and French. So, the German and French was really what? I did not really. Want to. I did not know that. Yeah, so for the, in the first three semesters, you have to test out of five languages. So I remember when I first came to Asbury Theological Seminary, I had to. Everybody went to go see the academic dean, <laughs> and uh, so his name was uh, uh, David Byer, and he's actually a reader on my dissertation committee. And the first thing he asked me uh, was, "How's your German?" And I. You know, I was expecting, like, how's your Greek or how's your Hebrew or something like that? And I'd be like, hey, it's great. I've studied a lot of that. But the first thing he asked is, how's your German? And I'm like, I, I guess I left it at home. No, but <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, I, I understood that there's a tutoring program here where we can work on German. He said, yeah, but it's better if you already have it before you come. And I was like, well, I guess I'm behind now. But I made it through that. And uh, so in research, you have to be able to study a lot of the modern languages because there's a lot of research and, you know, in the last hundred years in Germany and also in France. So you have to be able to find that information and, uh, you know, cite it or use it in some way for your research. So, um, for me, I mean, as far as becoming a professor, I think this is where I was headed all along. It just takes a long time, uh, the way for me, because I wanted to do it, I wanted to be very well, uh, capable. Uh, so I, that's why I've pursued a lot of education myself. So, um, but, and I can talk about my research if you want to a little bit, why it kind of ties into this stuff. Yeah. That, I think that would be great. So, uh, my research and, and my dissertation research is really about how information is packaged. So how do people communicate? And so how do they try to inform someone and the different ways that they would use language or an, an argument or a claim To try to persuade people towards some kind of understanding or to exhort so people would learn in a certain way. So that kind of fits in with parables because uh, part of this is, um, you know, understanding rhetoric. Even though rhetoric is not my main focus, I'm more, uh, I concentrate more on how uh, the wording is presented and then how maybe clauses come together in order to share information to try to, uh, again, try to influence someone to think in a certain way. And so you have times where you have a person with authority. They speak differently. If that authority is accepted by an audience, they would speak differently than a person who does not have that authority. Hmm. So there's two different ways of speaking, and we can see this in uh, parts of the New Testament. So, um, And then, again, uh, how, how are you trying to persuade someone? Are you trying to motivate them in a certain way? Or again, if you have authority, you might just be, you know, I have the credentials here, so you need to listen to me. So you might be more of a command or imperative language being used. So, um, so the parables, I mean, they aren't the focus of my research, but I'm fully aware of what's going on. And I teach, I'm teaching the gospel of Mark this semester. So I'm teaching, uh, the students a lot about, you know, obviously the narrative itself of the gospel, but about parables and how to understand how a story is being told to get the maximum impact from that story. Right, right. That's kind of what, so they, they kind of all go together in a sense.
0: Wow. That's, I'm, I'm just fascinated by all this stuff. I mean, I've, you know, I of course went to Bible college and, and seminary and we were actually in a class together which I was embarrassed to find out that I didn't even realize you were in my class. Of course, it's been you know 15 years ago or yeah, something. Yeah. But I've always been fascinated by biblical research, even though that hasn't been the focus for me necessarily vocationally or in my teaching. Something that always really I find interesting is what draws certain people as far as Bible study, what draws certain people to the New Testament and what draws certain people to the Old Testament. For example, my brother Don, of course you know him, Yeah, he was an Old Testament major, that was one of his master's degrees in, uh, in grad school. But then you have other guys who, who focus on New Testament. Like, in your experience, what is it that, that you think draws people specifically to the Old Testament versus New Testament or to specific things? Is there something sort of inherent within something, maybe the stories of the Old Testament that some people like that or some people love studying the letters of Paul or the Gospels or, you know, what is it that exactly draws people to a specific area of biblical
1: study? I don't know if I have a really good answer. I have an opinion. I think probably if a person decides to study the Old Testament, they're probably more of a history buff because there's just so much history there that you can look at. Uh, You can look at the Assyrian empire and how Israel is interacting with that. You could even go before that. Uh, you know, there's early Babylonian things going on. There's Canaanite things. There's Egypt. Uh, there's the Persian empire, uh, later Babylonian empire. So there's just so much history there. And, um, uh it, it it's just a treasure trove of of historical information that a person could to learn about in that uh, maybe someone's drawn to the Hebrew language I don't know it is kind of I think it has an elegance to it uh Oh absolutely uh that's much different than what we're used to so someone may be curious about that and want to study uh whole Old Testament for that reason I think a lot of people probably study the New Testament just because we're we're Christians and that's our text now Yeah yeah but my my feeling has always been you really cannot understand the New Testament unless you have a firm understanding of the Old Testament. Yeah, so exactly. That's why I did a masters in Old Testament studies also. Uh so everything that we have in the New Testament is founded upon the Old Testament except we have it being understood through the the life and ministry of Jesus, yeah. our Lord. So yeah. um and uh, uh the New Testament uh you know maybe some people are drawn to Paul. I really I admire Paul quite a bit so I I like studying Paul myself. Uh, But, you know, you have the teachings of of our Lord uh, in the gospels and, and, you know, there's, there's history in the new Testament, obviously, but it's much less. It's a condensed, uh, you know, we only have 60 years of, you know, historical time there, basically uh, of Jesus' ministry to the very end of uh, the new Testament revelation. But uh, there's history there, the Roman empire and the the Greek culture, which probably is very interesting to some people also. Um, So, you know, it's hard to say necessarily why someone's drawn in a certain way, but I think probably some of those ideas may yeah. may have yeah. some influence on why they choose the Old Testament or the New Testament or, yeah. or whatever they do. So.
0: So, and sometimes I don't think you even know why you're drawn to certain things. You know, no. whether it's music or art or uh, some type of specific, you know, architecture or uh, the law, being an attorney or whatever it is, you know it's almost like this mysterious thing that you feel you don't even choose it in in some regard. It almost like chooses you. And then, then it, you know, your life becomes a matter of just sort of obeying that calling that's been implanted within you. That's pulling you towards something rather than discovering something sort of on your own. That's been my experience, at least. I don't know if that's been your experience as well.
1: No, sure. Uh, Yeah. Sometimes I think maybe people in your life may have influence and direct you in a certain way. You know, you may have had a teacher and, undergrad that was uh, an Old Testament person and had a passion for that topic. And that may have, you know, led you to towards that or New Testament or something. So there's lots of things I think that contribute to the way decisions we make as far as biblical studies and other things. So uh, it's hard to say exactly, but uh, there are certain factors that are Uh, working on us, I'm I'm sure, while we're making decisions about what we want to do or not do, and finances too. I mean, obviously, it'd be better to have degrees on both sides, (laughs) but uh, finances are, you know, restrict too. So yeah, a person has to decide which way do I want to go, this way or that way. Well, I think that
0: is a key point with with teaching, and and that's certainly been my experience too, is that, you know, there is the calling element and sort of the spiritual side of it, I guess, if you will. But there's also the marketability side, and I know that was a huge reason why when I went to grad school, my Master of Arts was in worship studies, but I, I knew even back in my 20s, I knew for a fact there would come a day where I would want to expand beyond just that narrow field, which is why I then went on to do a Master of Divinity degree, which has served me really, really well. Right. It sounds like that was your strategy as well. as yeah. You kind of want to give yourself as many opportunities as possible.
1: Sure. I, I was early on I started in graduate school and seminary. I started working on the MDiv with a specialization in New Testament studies. And it wasn't long uh, that I started to have a, um, a desire to, or an interest in intertextuality, which is basically how the New Testament is using the Old Testament. And so I came to the conclusion that, you know, I really could not get a firm grasp of how they were using the Old Testament unless I really understood the Old Testament. So that's why I decided to do what I did. And I was blessed through this because I had lots of financial support not everybody has that right, right but i had lots of people supporting me so i made it through seminary two degrees and not uh, a dollar of debt and so That's i was, amazing. i was blessed that way now marketability for a person if they're wanting to know like uh, i'm trying to decide which way to go old testament or new testament i think you'll probably have more job opportunities if you pursue the old testament because there is just everybody's doing new testament yeah, yeah so when i went for my phd studies we're It's a PhD in biblical studies, but you choose New Testament or Old Testament. There were 13 of us, nine wanted to work in the New Testament, four wanted to work in the Old Testament. Okay, So, you know, people just choose the New Testament. So that area is flooded with people. Um, So again, if you're trying to find a job, maybe the Old Testament may be the way to go, but don't, you know, if your passion is the New Testament, stick with what your passion is and where you feel like God's taking you to, to study, but. You're not going to, you'll be rewarded with a degree in Old Testament studies. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's not yeah. going to, you're not doing, making a bad decision. It's a good decision. I mean, either side's good. Uh, and I think you're going to understand the New Testament much, much better the more, you know, knowledge and understanding you have of what's going on in the Old Testament, yeah. obviously. So,
0: part, for me, part of the, the appeal of the Old Testament is just the stories. Yeah. It's just, you, Crazy stories. In fact, I had a class yesterday, I think it was in my storytelling class when we met yesterday afternoon. We were talking about the story of um you know, the witch of Endor and how she, she calls up Samuel, you know, and and one of my students were was talking about that and and then it dawned on me that, you know, in that story and this this has nothing to do with the parables, which is supposed to be the topic of this yeah. talk, but anyway, sometimes you go off track. It was fascinating to me that, you know, the text never says that it was something that they were imagining or something that was sort of a hallucination or whatever. I mean, it it presents it as if that was actually Samuel, which I find really, really fascinating.
1: That's a weird story. Oh, it is. It definitely is. And there was an article about that story in the journal of uh, Old Testament studies uh, in the September uh, issue. And I was reading it and uh, the the person was talking about Samuel and the, the life of Samuel and that, that event itself at the end there of Saul's, you know, towards the end of Saul's reign, and he he brought up an interesting point that, you know, when we look at Samuel's life as a whole, his life, his story really begins with a woman, yeah. Hannah, yeah, and then it closes with this witch, yeah, and so he has this women on both sides of his story, it's really kind of interesting why I tell the story that way about Samuel. You know, it's kind of, but the, the you know at the very end of the of the witch, it's obviously, obviously we have Saul doing something that he shouldn't be doing. Yeah. And we have this, you know, bringing up the ghost of of Samuel again. Yeah. So it, it's really fascinating, but it's a really good interesting story about how this person kind of dissects this stuff about Samuel's yeah. life. So well,
0: it kind of just proves to me again the the power of stories. Yeah. and how we latch onto those emotionally. And you know, of course there's theological reasons for all those things being in the Bible, but but yet it's the emotional you know, it's almost like the cinematic. You know, I I just I would love to see somebody make a really good movie about about that. Maybe not a whole movie about that one episode because it's not very long. Right. But but yet, you know, if you love movies and and TV shows and stuff, you can easily see how somebody could make a really interesting scene about that or something. Right. So I guess that leads us into kind of our, our topic, which is parables. Now, for those who are listening, you know, we have some people who are longtime Christians, others who may not be as familiar with the Bible. Can you give us kind of a brief rundown of what is a parable and why
1: did Jesus use
0: parables so often?
1: Sure. Um, so um, parable itself is, a, you can think of a, uh it's just an illustration uh, story, uh, something like that. But it prob- the word itself probably stems from the idea of throwing, uh, throwing alongside. So the idea would be that Jesus is teaching something to someone and he uses an illustration. Now we don't always have the the uh, teaching discourse, it seems like sometimes it goes straight into parables, but the purpose of the parable would be to provide some kind of substantiation to whatever uh, Jesus is talking about. Parables, are they can be complex or they can be very simple, and the complexity or the simplicity depends on how many characters are in that story. The more characters you have, the complexity of the story okay. increases. Okay. If you only have or items, like the parable of the four seeds, it's a very complex story uh, because there's four items there. Now, if you have a simple story like uh, uh, the kingdom of heavens like a mustard seed, we only have one thing, so it's a very simple story. So it can be complex or it can be very simple. Um, it's not just as uh, simple to say that the, a parable is a an earthly story with a heavenly meaning either. It's they're much more. There's much more going on there than that. They seem to be, it seems that when Jesus, he understands his audience very well when he's telling a story. So it would be very interesting, and I have not done this, to look at the parables and to try to uh, discover what kind of audience he's talking to. If he's talking to a rural audience, if you're dealing in Galilee, it's generally a rural audience. What kind of parables does he use in that instance? When he's in Jerusalem, what kind of parables does he use then? Because he knows his audience, and he's using stories that would relate to that audience. So, I mean, a modern-day idea would be um, – I, I preach in a rural church right now, so it wouldn't be very – it would be unwise of me to share a story about traffic problems in St. Louis. They just don't even understand traffic problems in St. Louis. We do well, in St. Louis. Yeah, those in, of St. St. Louis, in St. Louis they yeah, do, but they don't there where they're at in their little town – or if I was in St. Louis, it probably wouldn't do me much good to talk about, you know, corn. You use a story about corn, even though people drive by it. You know, there's you have to know your audience in order to connect to that audience, so that they have the story itself can. It has to have a a, a connection to their life, their livelihood. That's when it gets to be really uh, effective, and can really speak to a person. Yeah, so, that makes sense. Uh, so I was talking about Jesus and uh, uh, where, how he knows his audience. I, one thing came to mind real quick. You know, Towards the end of the last week of Jesus' life, he's in Jerusalem most of the time doing things, teaching or, or other things uh, before his death. And uh, I, the parable of the wicked tenants, he tells this in Jerusalem itself. And so he's not talking about an actual farmer farming. He's talking about someone who rents out land to other people. That seems to be indicative, probably, of someone who lived in Jerusalem. That may have been wealthy. They okay. wouldn't have farmed; they would have rented it out to other people, and then they would have sent someone to go get the the harvest, the you know, the fruit. And so, small detail that of, makes a big difference. Yeah. So they would know about that. Like, oh yeah, that's, you know, that's kind of what I do. I I have land too, and I rent it out to other people. But in Galilee, he probably talks about you know actually going out and putting the seed in the ground. The parable of the sower, the seeds. So knowing your audience, you know, and how that connects. Gives it a punch and maybe more shock when he's telling the story. So these stories also have a, a shocking value. It's hard for us to probably to understand the shock value, but that's what makes them so poignant. Um, it, it's like Jesus is taking them in in the story, and they're expecting something, but he does something very ironic or shocking, and so um, and that you know, that kind of helps them to, um, well, you could say they don't get bored, but if they're starting to drift off into a law, it snaps them back in. Like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe he said that. It's like they perk back up again. And there's other things that go on in stories. Like when Jesus says, amen, amen, or truly, truly, I tell you, that would be something that would catch their ear also, and it has rhetorical value in that, like, listen up. What I'm getting ready to say is really important. Or when Jesus says, he who has ears, let them hear, you know, these kind of simple things like this are, are, uh, communicative, uh, communicating devices that let an audience know, you know, listen up. Something's getting ready to be said. That's really, really important. And then parables, as you're looking at parables, I'm drifting off here. I hopefully I'm staying on track. No, this, I'm is, not, this is great. Me, this is perfect on track. So when you're looking at parables, you need to think about a story uh so there there are elements in stories that are really important, so right off the bat, what I would tell someone to do about a parable is look if there's a time element in that story. So you know if there's something like he talks about you know after the harvest or springtime or something like that if look for a time element it't it will not always be there but if a if a person a narrator, puts something in a parable or a story itself about time, it's there for a reason it's important. So like Jesus, sometimes it'll be like uh, on the Sabbath he did things. Well, then you understand that he's doing things that the culture would be thinking like, should you be doing this on the Sabbath?
0: Kind of highly discouraged. Yes.
1: So he's indicating something for us to take notice of that. Um, But time won't always be there. But if it is, take notice of it. But always think about characters in the story and how they're described or concepts or something. But characters, how's the narrator describe the characters, even clothing, clothing can be important. Um, you know, anything that it tells about the character, the narrator wants you to understand something about that character. He's trying to, he's trying to draw a picture for you in your mind, uh, about this character, any type of action, the character does pay close attention, speech, pay close attention to what the character says. Speech often will indicate things to us about the character itself. So, or characters, so pay close attention to these these details. Just don't you know push through it. I often tell my students and I tell people in the church, slow down and read your Bible, you know, more uh, carefully because we just kind of blow through the text. Also, think about the storyline. So all stories, all good stories, and, and I'm a hopeless romantic here when I say this. <laughs> uh, I like the good to always overcome the evil, but good stories are like that: the good overcomes the evil. And I can think of, you know, there are stories out there, obviously, where good does not win, but we generally don't like those stories. If good is defeated, we don't like those stories. We don't want right, to right. watch it. We don't want to talk about it. That's just not the world that we live in. So uh, in the stories that Jesus tells or parables or even other places in the New Testament or Old Testament where there are stories, accounts, narratives, there's always going to be some kind of a uh, a problem that's introduced. It, there's, it has to be a tension in the story. And so you think about a story moving along, then a, there'll be a tension and it, the, the tension I always market as something rising. So the tension goes up to a climactic point and there has to be a resolution of that, of that tension or the story cannot move forward. Right. So right. like Jesus healing people on the Sabbath, like, is it lawful to heal somebody on the Sabbath? You know, so there's tension there, like, Oh No what will Jesus do? And then he heals him. And so the tension's released and he often he'll release the tension by saying something back. Like, is it good to do something? You know, is it good to heal on the Sabbath? Well, the answer is like, well, yeah, I mean, my gosh, people are important. So he can release the tension, you know, by saying something or doing something. And then the story can move on. But if the story, if the tension's not released, we're just stuck there in emotional angst. Not we're wondering like <laughs> oh no what's going to happen you know the story cannot move forward and and then that gives us a good feeling about the story too and then it can it can move on again so always look for that in the storyline and sometimes stories will have maybe multiple tension points so a good example is uh, in in Mark chapter uh, five when when a a synagogue ruler by the name of Jairus comes to Jesus his daughter's mm-hmm. sick and he says Jesus come. And heal my daughter so she won't die. So Jesus is going along to do this. And in the midst of this miracle story, there's another miracle story embedded. The woman, the hemorrhaging woman. And so we have tension building, and it's stuck there. The synagogue ruler's daughter is very ill, almost dead. And then we have another miracle story coming in. And it's almost we're writing that tension of the first story. And then another story comes in, and we have tension in it also with this hemorrhaging woman and the, the narrator Tells us, you know, that uh that this miracle story is, you know, that she was desperate. She was so desperate she thought that even if she could if she could just touch Jesus' garment, um she would be healed. And she doesn't come to Jesus from the front, she comes from the back, which is different than the way other people have been doing things. Other people have been approaching Jesus and prostrating themselves. I never realized she, that. She's like the stalking woman. She comes up from behind <laughs> and grabs him or touches his cloak. But anyway, in parables, sometimes there might be multiple levels of tension, so be ready for that, like the parable of the prodigal son. There are probably, you know, if you sit down and looked at it real closely, and, I, and I'm and i not thinking about it, I haven't thought about it yet, but I'm sure I can mark uh, different areas where there's tension, maybe a release and then continuing on, or a tension that rides through the whole story. And maybe small areas of attention. So always look for that. It's, it's plot or storyline, depending on you know who's who you're looking at as far as understanding parables. And then uh, I talked about speech before, but pay attention to speech. Um, what a person says, or or what a you know multiple people. What do they say? Pay close attention to speech. It often will have something important to say about that character, about events in the story itself. Um, and, and then one thing about characters, I need to come back to characters real quick is that, um, and probably parables would fit this idea as far as characters in, in the parable itself, characters can be foils too. foils are an important idea in lit- in literature because if a, a foil is a, generally, well, I'm thinking about the new Testament and stories, parables and just narrative itself, foils generally are minor characters. They're not the major characters. They're generally minor characters. And what they do is they do some kind of action that the storyteller or the narrator wants to happen. And it's usually in contrast to other people. So the major characters, we expect them to behave in a certain way, but they're not. And so then we have a foil or a minor character that comes along, and that person behaves as the major character should or an, an antagonist or something like that, and so they they can be a very powerful means of expressing some kind of truth that this person, uh, what people should be doing, or this foil does this kind of activity. So, um,
0: is that almost the the role that sometimes the prophets play in the Old Testament, where they're they're sort of a foil to the like, for instance, the prophet Nathan when he goes to David after he sinned with Bathsheba, committed adultery. In that sense, he is sort of foiling David's intention to hide this sin and to go along, or, or am I totally applying a concept that doesn't belong in that context?
1: Um, I don't know if I, I'd have to think about that. But I know it's a whole different yeah, genre. So. Yeah, a good foil would be like, uh, and Mark's on my mind right now because I'm teaching Mark, but in Mark chapter 2, the companions of the paralytic bringing the paralyzed guy in, and he says, Jesus looks at him and says, oh, I can see you have faith. And, uh, you know, and he says to him, your sins are forgiven. But, the, but in this midst, we have other people too, that are grumbling or thinking, considering in their minds, they don't speak, but they're upset about this and, uh, they don't have the faith that the paralyzed guy has. And so he's almost a foil to these religious leaders that should okay. be accepting Jesus and understanding him and having faith but this guy's a kind of a foil and and he doesn't show up again in the story anymore, but the religious leaders continue on and they continue to escalate their, you know, their uh, antipathy against Jesus, you know, it just continues on. And so um, there are other places where there are foils. Um, For instance, maybe the, the, the uh, Mark chapter five, the demoniac legion um, at after he's healed, He asked Jesus, you know, can I go with you? And Jesus doesn't let him. He says, you know, you need to stay over here and work in this area. But maybe that's a foil to some people who aren't willing to fully commit to Jesus. Okay. Okay. Because this guy is like, he's only known Jesus for, I don't know, 30 minutes, an hour or something. And he's willing to leave everything and follow, you know, and Jesus doesn't let him. So so the foil is the idea of someone, a minor character, again, that. Uh, does the action that we would expect that we want the major characters to do okay but are unwilling to do okay. or maybe an antagonist should be doing and we we get more upset because they they oppose Jesus more instead of accepting or changing their way of thinking about Jesus okay. or something like that so look for foils and characters too so uh, th- those like i said they can have a, a dramatic uh you know message uh for for a person. And another thing about parables as I was talking about using how they're used. Think of it think of parables uh, this way. So, here's where my information or communication uh transmission research kind of comes into play. So, I'm looking at why uh Jesus might use a parable. So, I'm looking at an audience. So, what kind of audience is he talking to? So if he was talking to an audience that accepted his authority, we'll say the disciples, if they accepted his authority, he would probably just talk to them in a more teaching discourse, like the Sermon yes. on the Mount. Right, he would just right. come out and say, this is what you need to do, because they would accept his authority. But if he was talking to a group of people who did not accept his authority, he may use a more subtle means to try to influence someone. So he's he's trying to persuade people all the time. So Which is what all
0: communication is yeah, on some level anyway. Yeah.
1: So he may use um, a less or more subtle, less offensive way, less direct, I guess, an indirect method. So if you're not accepted as an authority figure, uh, you can use different means to try to, to reason with people. So you can do you can use an inductive style an Inductive okay. style means that. Your main point doesn't come till the very end, and you kind of work your way this way. You're trying to lead someone in a certain way of thinking, and at the very end, you're like, boom, here it is, whereas deductive reasoning or presentation of information generally comes from someone who has authority. Right off the bat, they're going to say, this is why you should not do this, or here's the command, and then supporting information afterwards. So if Jesus was talking to a group of people who did not accept his authority, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees. Herodians, religious leaders, whoever else, he may use this approach as an inductive means to drive to a message uh, that they wouldn't get until the very, very end. Okay, And so, you know, I, I, I wonder about the audience, too, sometimes. Uh, what kind of audience is he talking to? Um, the active audience, the physical audience, and then we also need to think about the ideal audience, Okay, because sometimes the audience may not do what Jesus wants them to do, but there's <laughs> yeah. an effect on us. There's an ideal audience, like, this is what you really need to do. Uh, so there's there's levels of audience thinking about also. So for those who are
0: listening who, you know, they may not be Bible scholars, they're not thinking about these things all day, are there some transferable principles that you would say, when you look at the parables of Jesus, these are two, three, four things that if you're writing, speaking, teaching, uh, communicating with people, these are some simple Really practical takeaways that we can apply to our communication today.
1: Um, well, like I've said before uh, earlier, and I'll say it again, and you got to know your audience. I mean, that is take, so important. Take time to know the makeup of your audience. If you're going somewhere to speak or you're writing or something, I mean, you can be more generalized, or, or or you can target an audience. But if you target an audience, you know, make sure you speak to that audience in a way that they can relate to your story. It, it just you're not going to touch them if you're talking about something they just cannot relate to on a daily in their, very in their true. life. They have to, you know, it has to be that way. Also about storytelling, um, uh, try to do some kind of shock value in it. I, and again, that's knowing your audience, but shocking them to some degree is going to have a huge benefit. Uh, another thing I think is very important and it's, I think it's extremely hard to do is that I, I prefer an inductive style of reasoning, uh, meaning like I like to, uh, present information to people and not make the decision on how they should, uh, or make the conclusion for them, but draw them or lead them in a certain way that they come to a desired conclusion. Why? Because if they have to think through the information and sort through it and process it, it's going to stick with them a lot more than if I say, this is the way you should think. Yeah. It's way more meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully you can tell a story in a way that's going to lead them, like you know, you're taking the horse to the water. You, you take them there, and then they have to process that information and and uh, fit it into their cognitive uh, framework, and it's going to stick with them much better than if you just tell them this is what it's, you know supposed to be. So character, uh, you know, if you have characters in the story, um, you know that has to fit into the life setting too. I mean, our you know what kind of life the audience has characters have to be something something that they know or they're aware of um so characters
0: who are relatable on yeah, in some way to the audience yes,
1: very relatable so don't make your characters you know somebody something that they could never aspire to be you know like don't talk about pro basketball players or something <laughs> nobody they're not gonna play pro basketball but uh maybe you talk about i don't know a business owner or yeah. Or a farmer or something like that. Something that they can, you know, see themselves as being or are. Uh, so, um, but, uh, and if you can build tension and then have resolution too, because all good stories, you know, that's what keeps people on the edge of their seat. It's like, oh, oh no, that happened, you know, and, and then there's a, re- a resolution, uh, uh, you know, to that story. So so stories
0: uh, really have, the, the structure of stories hasn't really not changed at all. You have you know, kind of, you're introducing a setting or, you know, in the hero's journey template from Joseph Campbell, they're going to talk about the ordinary world. Then you have rising tension, then some sort of climax and resolution and, and hopefully some sort of reversal, dramatic reversal, like in the story, just in my class yesterday, we were talking about the story of Esther and how that has such a dramatic reversal with, you know, the villain Haman who is hanged on the gallows that actually he had built for
1: Mordecai. Yeah. And it's
0: such a dramatic, you know, you could, you couldn't write this stuff. Yeah, right. I mean, it's true. It's just, but it's also so dramatically satisfying.
1: Yeah, it's so ironic. It's yeah, dripping it with irony. It is. It and is. So it, that makes for a great story too, because yeah, you know, the person, the the antagonist, had plans, and they're completely disrupted, and everything's yeah. turned around, and and we don't like Haman, and then the end is like we well, we, we don't cheer about death, but in a storytelling type of format. is like, Oh, the bad guy got his What well, was due? You exactly. Know? So it makes exactly. us happy. So,
0: yeah. And that's something I really want to want to emphasize to those who are listening is, you know, I love all the modern storytelling books. I love movies and I love the net. Well, I don't know, love all movies and all Netflix shows, but there's a lot of really good stuff being produced today. However, some of the best stuff is not new. And right. if we want to learn how to tell stories and connect with audiences, who are very modern in their sensibility, sometimes going back to ancient sources, obviously like the Bible, can give us a lot of good insights, a lot of really practical insights yeah. that are that are not just about stories that happened to people thousands of years ago, but they're things that we can draw out of those stories and principles that we can apply to our communication right here and right now as a speaker or a podcaster or a blogger or a writer right. or or whatever it is
1: yeah in some in some respects we're limited because. We are a uh, we are a, a, a book culture or, or yes. literature. We're paper culture. We like our information to be stored on paper on with bindings and stuff. But in the ancient days, they were it was an oral culture. That's they told stories all the time. So if you want to become good at storytelling, I would recommend that you start becoming more yeah. oral and yeah. you know don't read out of the book, you know, or read your notes. Just you know get up there and present your information exactly become more of an oral presenter. Uh, and so, you know, it's almost like we're not that kind of culture, but they were like that back then and they were master storytellers because that's what they did all the they time. They had to be. You'll get better at it the more you do it. So yep.
0: well to kind of wrap this up, are there any resources or books that you would recommend on the parables of Jesus or even just Bible study tools in general to help people better understand God's word, but specifically to understand parables and Jesus's storytelling methods even better.
1: Yeah, there's an excellent book, um, by Craig Blomberg. It's about interpreting the parables and he has, I think he has a couple books, but the one interpreting the parables is, is very good. Um, he goes through and talks about, uh, parables and the complexity and the storyline and plot and things like that. There are also some, um, uh, some, narrative analysis I that's kind of one of the things I've been talking about as we've talking about stories, but narrative analysis is another um, thing to look about as far as narratives. It, it doesn't specifically talk about parables, but you have to understand that a parable is basically just a narrative. Right. So if you have these concepts of narrative analysis, you can apply them to parable parable studies. And so uh, Mark Allen Powell has an excellent book. It's called What is Narrative Criticism? don't get hung up on the word criticism it's not a bad word uh it's just a the Germans started using it a long time ago because it's in their language that means an, uh, uh analysis so basically he's just saying what is narrative analysis so not criticism so that's good uh there's another good book it's not necessarily directed at parables but it's just a good book about how to study your Bible and it's done by um david bauer and um, robert Trana, and it's called inductive bible study and so he'll talk about lots of different types of writing in the bible but he'll talk about narrative analysis also in some point so that's a good something good to read and really that could be used in a like a sunday school class that book yeah it's yeah. A, there is some technical language in it but it's it's pretty good as far as uh, relating some information there so those are a few resources uh, that would be very helpful for awesome. doing this stuff. So. Thank
0: you. Yeah. Well, uh, I really want to emphasize to people not to be intimidated by all of this stuff. You're working on a PhD in this area, and you know, for those who aren't Bible scholars or they don't teach, maybe they're even really, really new to the Bible. Man, you just got to dive in and, and start to learn, and it is so rewarding. I think. But uh, well, Doug, I really appreciate your time. Sure. Uh, I appreciate you as a colleague here yeah. at St. Louis Christian College and. Uh, I know this is your, your first semester here, so we're really glad to have you, and I appreciate you sharing with our listeners today. Well, thank you for having me. So one final thing is, um, if anybody listening has any questions about this, is it okay if they follow up maybe through email? or? Yeah,
1: Yeah. so um, you can email me through St. Louis Christian College. It's Phillips at uh, stlchristian.edu. Yep,
0: that's correct, and I'll have the links to all this stuff in the show notes. Okay, for the podcast. all right. So, well, good deal. Well, thanks so much, and God bless. Okay, thanks for having me. I hope that you enjoyed that interview with Doug Phillips. It was really fun talking with him and diving deep into this topic of storytelling in the Bible. Now, at the end of every interview on this podcast, I want to share three specific things that I learned from our guest. And these are simply some takeaways that you can put into practice right away to start making a bigger impact in your creative work. So here's three key takeaways from our conversation. Number one, understand your audience. It's really vital that we speak to our listeners or our readers in a way that they can relate to. Jesus knew his audience, and he used stories that spoke to their needs and concerns. So it's important that we take time to identify our ideal audience member, our client, or our customer or reader, and that we think about how to communicate them in a way that they can understand. Number two, use an inductive approach in your communication. It doesn't work just to say, Here's what you should think, here's what you should believe, or here's what you should do. A much better approach is to lead people in a way where they come to the conclusion on their own. We've got to help people process information that we want them to know instead of just beating them over the head with it. As the saying goes, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Good storytelling can help us lead people instead of pushing them. And then number three, study the Bible to improve your communication. It's easy to separate your spiritual life from your business or your creative work. That's tempting for all of us to do. But you can learn a lot by studying the communication techniques and the literary genres of the Bible. Today's audiences have a short attention span. Whether you're a writer, speaker, podcaster, pastor, or some other type of communicator, there's a lot you can learn from Jesus' short, punchy style of storytelling. In addition, a large percentage of the Bible is in some form of narrative. About 40% of the Old Testament and much of the New Testament is narrative or stories. In fact, in the New Testament, it's the Gospels, the book of Acts, and most of the book of Revelation. So a huge chunk of the Bible is basically stories. So the Bible has a lot of stories that can teach us not only on a spiritual and historical level, they can also help us to become better storytellers if we're willing to pay attention and learn from this ancient book that is living and active in our lives today. In addition to these takeaways, I'm going to recommend five resources that I think you'll find helpful on this topic of storytelling in the Bible. The first three of these are books, and then the other two, I'll mention those as I go along. Number one is How to Read the Bible as Literature by Leland Riken. Number two is The Revolutionary Communicator, Seven Principles Jesus Lived to Impact, Connect, and Lead. Now, I'm probably going to mispronounce these two authors' names that Wrote the book, The Revolutionary Communicator, but I'll give it my best shot. Jed Metafind and Eric Loksmo. Again, I'm probably mispronouncing those, but there's a link in the show notes that you can um, use to find that book. Number three is The Art of Storytelling, Easy Steps to Presenting an Unforgettable Story by John Walsh. Number four is a 10-part YouTube series called How to Read the Bible that was created by the wonderful guys at The Bible Project. This very fun and very engaging series covers literary styles, plot, character setting, and other aspects of biblical storytelling. And then number five is the ESV Study Bible, which is the Bible that I personally use. And I think it's the best study Bible on the market that will help you understand literary genres and other aspects of storytelling. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I would be extremely grateful if you would consider taking just a minute or two to leave an honest review of the podcast on iTunes. Those reviews are extremely helpful for reaching new listeners, and I read and greatly appreciate every single one of them. And if you know of anybody who would enjoy these episodes, please consider sharing it with them as well. For more, you can visit us at dailywriterlife.com. Thanks, and I'll see you tomorrow.